Hello, and welcome back to His Simple Truth Podcast. My name is Greg Mullins. And I'm Tyson Thompson. Hello, everybody. We are extremely excited to be with you today. Yes. We are currently in the forest, and it's snowing on us, and there's lots of snow already on the ground, and it's cold. Yes. And we like it. And it is awesome. <laughs> Winter's my jam. Perfect office. I would live um, 10 months of winter, two months of summer. I can skip spring or fall. <laughs> uh, I like my seasons. <laughs> I do too. Just two of them. <laughs> so before we get started on today's podcast, just one little piece. We had um, a sister approach us. and A couple of them, actually. A couple of different people. And helped us to see that there are some um, words that we use to describe things that maybe are not exactly in line with the spirit. They're not the best words. They're probably not even on, like good on the good, better, best scale, to be honest. <laughs> We're making holy things, unholy things, trying to make them holy by saying holy before them. <laughs> That's not <laughs> that good. doesn't work. So we are repenting. And I don't know how many times we said it. We're two knuckleheads from North Idaho. And for those of you who haven't ever been to North Idaho, this is where the rednecks live. <laughs> right. <laughs> so we're just like a couple of dudes trying to be spiritual versions of rednecks. So if things come out, right, that we would have said normally when we were fixing something with bailing wire and duct tape, um, that's because we're trying to shed our own traditions. And we are therefore not afraid to publicly repent of... Um, anything that we've said that would repel the spirit and or um, offend anyone. Um, so, Just know that our hearts are pure and our intents are pure. and Sometimes we, our mouths are not. <laughs> get a little fired up sometimes. Yeah, we get a little amped. <laughs> okay, so enough of that. On to this week's podcast. So this is going to be a two-part series. Um and this is podcast number 27, and its title is Return of the King. So we are going to be discussing the nature of our Savior over the next couple of podcasts. Um, and uh, I'm just going to leave it at that for now so I don't give anything away. But we're going to start out uh, kind of setting the stage uh, before we really get into talking about the Savior. Um, the prophet admonished us to go through the scriptures and study everything we could find on Jesus Christ to understand his true nature. When he first gave that um, admonition, I was like, man, I think I know the Savior pretty well. You know, right. I don't know yeah. if I need I mean, to. Come on, President Nelson, I got this down. <laughs> I cannot even explain to you how much more I know about my Savior now as I've tried to really do what he's asked us to do and, and really learn the true nature of this this man, this God that we follow. Um, one of the things that really holds us back from being able to understand <clears throat> the true nature of the Lord is some of the traditions that have been built up over time. One of our good friends, his name is Jake, Jake Box. He actually was the one that did the first Zion podcast. He sent us over a couple words of wisdom as we approached a group of powerful brothers for just thoughts on what we might share in today's podcast. This is one of the things that he sent over to us. He said, the words tradition and unbelief are one and the same. 
For me, traditions are the walls of unbelief that creep into our lives, our church, and our society. They are those things that water down the gifts of the Spirit, the Lord's work, the knowledge of God, and all things of light and truth. The truth that the covenant people have become such box checkers indicates how alive traditions and unbelief exist. When the scriptures are taken not at face value and believed to in their fullness, know that traditions of unbelief are creeping in aggressively. Traditions and unbelief are some of the deadliest sins that cloud and clouds of darkness that can overcome us. DNC 84:53 says, the whole world groaneth under sin and darkness. Your minds in times past have been darkened because of unbelief, i.e. traditions. Um, as I read that and really thought about, <laughs> interesting in that section in Dr. Covenants, it says the problem that we have is that we haven't fully believed the Book of Mormon yet. Right. Yep. We've literally the watered Bible. it down. Yeah. And the Bible, right? And yep. we've told ourselves things about God that aren't true. Even the manifestation of God in the flesh, which is Christ, we've, well, Joseph Smith said, excuse him, he said, if men do not comprehend the character of God, they do not comprehend themselves, right? And I've <clears throat> sort of made it a point probably over the last like six or eight weeks to just ask people to give me a reflection of who they feel Christ is. And they've done it. Um, but I've realized the theme is that the fullness of Christ isn't in the description. And these are active members of the church. And I realized that because it wasn't in me up until long ago, right? Like I didn't compl- and I still don't have the fullness of Christ, right? I still don't, I still haven't come into his presence in this life, but, um, but I, I've been in his, I've been in his, in the spirit, in his presence and learned a lot more about him. He's, he's so much more than the pale, frail hippie, right? That we, as a tr- tradition in Christianity have painted him to be. He's a lot more than that. And and that shift in my mind has made a huge difference yeah. in, in him being effective in his mentoring of me as his disciple. Yeah. We're going to be talking about today Christ in the red robes, um, which is a very different image than a lot of Christendom portrays him as. And we'll get into that in a minute. Before that, we really want to set the stage on how tradition has blocked us from truly understanding who we are, what's available to us, and how we can really truly become one with the Savior. I just love our prophet. We've talked about it on many, many podcasts, how he is trying to break down traditions and really um, propel us forward. I just wanted to read a couple of his quotes and one from his wife really quick, just as a reminder talking about the tradition of the name of the church he says we know that it's going to be a challenge to undo tradition of more than a hundred years and we don't have all the answers he he is recognizing that over the last hundred years things have been watered down that tradition has crept in what what we see what happens is somebody's opinion will be given and that opinion changes to a policy and then that a policy that policy somehow all of a sudden is is considered doctrine right it's presented as doctrine and yeah. you're like wait, wait good example of that would be the facial hair 
Right. Right. That was an opinion of a church leader that became a policy that now it's like doctrine, man. You're like evil if you got goatee on. Right. <laughs> right. Yep. Um, just one simple one, but there's tons and tons of them that we could go through. And the prophet is currently trying to slowly um, bring those traditions down without destroying the church. Just to quote President Monson, or not quote him because I don't have it in front of me, but basically President Monson said that um, he things have to be carefully said so that the chickens don't molt. <laughs> right. Right? Yeah, I remember that. It was a whole parable that he gave in a talk. When he gave that parable, a lot of people were like, what is he talking about? Chickens molting. Like, they didn't right. even recognize what he was getting at. But basically, because these traditions have been built up so fully, if we take them down too quickly, then people start to panic. And we're starting to see that over and over and over again. Um, throughout the church, as different things are brought down, people can't figure out what to do with it. Ministering is a huge... A lot of people are sitting home like, I don't even know how to minister even though it's the exact same thing as what they should have been doing with home teaching, they're panicked because the tradition of home teaching went away. I love Sister Nelson. She is, she is powerful yeah. and she is bold and she is not afraid to say it the way she feels it. <laughs> this is a quote from Sister Nelson about her husband, the prophet. I have seen him changing in the last 10 months. It's as though he has been unleashed. She said, she said he is free to finally do what he came to earth to do. He is free to follow through with the things he's been concerned about but could never do. Now that he's the president of the church, he can do those things. He's not afraid to do something different, said the prophet's wife. If we're really preparing the church and the world for the second coming of the Savior, he is sincere about that. He doesn't want us spending money, time, energy, or anything that isn't really focused on that mission. It's pretty stunning. Interesting, her wording. Right? Here's an apostle that's been an apostle of the church for how long? Mm -hmm. I don't even know how many years. 40-something. Oh, yeah, longer than I've been alive. I know that. <laughs> yeah. And she says now he's unleashed to do things that he's been concerned about but could never do. Um. The prophet said, we're witnessing, we're witnesses to a process of restoration. If you think the church has been fully restored, you're just seeing the beginning. There is much more to come. Wait until next year and then the next year. Yeah, I was in the same context too of him saying, if you think the restoration is complete, take your vitamin pills and get your rest. Yeah. This is going to be exciting. Yep. Yeah. So all of these different quotes... <laughs> To me, and this is my opinion, as I've looked at the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints over the last few years, before the prophet, we have been locked down in traditions that this is how you do it. You go to church on Sunday, you study your lesson, you have your family home evening, you say your prayers at night, all the box checking stuff that we've talked about over and over again. And if you're doing those things, then you're good. That's good. You're doing what you're supposed to be doing. And then the contrary to that is the culturalism, right? Of, And and I've heard this over the pulpit in recent days, right? Someone will stand up and say, 
don't seek the mysteries, right? Because you can get lost and pulled down forbidden paths and blah, 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 right? And I've heard that, and I'm like, wait, that's not... It's right. contrary to what the prophet's saying. Right. The prophet is literally telling us it's time, again, because this is how it was in the early days of the Restoration, that we learn to follow the Spirit. Right. Well, jo- and Joseph Smith, at the same time, still struggled with the same same thing, right? This is an age-old problem for God since the beginning, right? Yep. You got Adam and Eve living the gospel, right? And in that scenario... <laughs> Peter, James, and John come down. They're like, hey, how's it going? What's being taught, right? And Satan's like, how's, they're like, how's this teaching received? And, and, they're, and Satan's like, very well, except for these people, right? Mm-hmm. So that denotes that obviously Adam and Eve were following the gospel, and everybody else, most of their children weren't, right? Yeah. So this is an age-old problem. Um, Joseph Smith said, <clears throat> this is pretty clear language from the prophet of the restoration. He who was second to Christ, having done more for the salvation of man than anyone else. He says, I have tried for a number of years to get the minds of the saints prepared to receive the things of God. But we frequently see some of them after suffering all they have for the work of God will fly apart like glass as soon as something, anything comes that is contrary to their traditions. They cannot stand the fire at all. How many will be able to abide a celestial law and go through and receive their exaltation? I am unable to say, as many are called, but few are chosen. That's a prophet of the Restoration who was saying, even in his day, you know, he's... Go ahead. I don't know how many guys are going to make it. Right. Because they get locked down in these these traditions that they believe. So a tradition is simply this. Well, I guess I already said it. Someone's opinion that gets taken and turned into somehow turned into a doctrine. Right. And... And we, as a people, have many, many, many traditions. Mm -hmm. They are what have caused us to, as President Uchtdorf said, live below our privileges. Nobody's willing to take a step out there and say anything because they're afraid they're going to get locked down for it. And the truth and the reality is they are getting locked down for it. There is a lot of unrighteous dominion that's happening throughout the church because people are trying to do what the prophets asked us to do, to seek out that higher light and knowledge, to, to get outside of this box that we've been locked into and start receiving true power from heaven. And as that happens, man, it ruffles a lot of feathers. Yep. And leaders and people in positions of authority, as they perceive, are flying apart like glass, right? Like they, because they, and part of it is well intended. We have to be careful and say that too that some of these leaders who are exercising unrighteous dominion think they're actually helping, right? Well, we saw that effect in Paul, the life of Paul, Saul, when he was, when he was still a Pharisee, right? Like he did the same thing. He, he wanted to protect the people. I think genuinely Paul, Saul, when he was Saul, thought he was doing the right thing because he was trying to protect the people from themselves, right? Yep. When God's law has always been, just like Joseph said, teach people correct principles and let them govern themselves, right? That's right. Which is what I feel like the theme of President Nelson's process has been, is to get us out of this pharisaical construct of tradition that we're in, Right which says, here's the line, don't cross the line, right? If you cross the line, we're going to throw you out of the game yep. and get into 
understanding the fullness of the measure of Christ. Yep. So that when he appears, we shall be like him because we'll see him as he is. Yeah. Joseph Smith said, I say to all those who are disposed to set up stakes for the Almighty. So those of us who are who want uh, good intentions, we're setting up our stakes, we're trying to do what we're supposed to be doing. He said, you will come short of the glory of God to become joint heir of the heirship of the son, one must put away his false traditions. Um, and we're going to get into a little bit more of what that means in a minute, but I've watched as people try and present something in a Sunday school lesson that is in the lesson, but it's not something we're supposed to talk about based on traditions right it's on the it's on the unwritten taboo list right even though it's written into the lesson manual even though it's in scripture (laughs) even though it's even though prophets have said it right it's so interesting to me we read these stories of all of these great men in the scriptures and women and the mighty works that they did and we're like that's awesome i want to be like him and then the prophet's like you should be like him you should be able to do what he's doing. Like, and then oh, we're like, ooh, that's getting out there. Right. Uh, it's kind of fringy. This uh, came up yesterday, actually, in Sunday school, because we're a little bit behind trying to make up some lessons. But <clears throat> we're talking about the question was asked, when did Peter make his decision? You know what I mean? About being all in, right? And I used the, the example of a Benedict. And then the brother behind me made a great comment. He's like, Abednai made the decision that he'd be burned at the stake when he turned around and went back after and put on a disguise to go among the people again. That's when, as a in in his role as a disciple of Jesus Christ, when he made his decision was then that he was going to follow through regardless of the cost. And somehow, right now, in our lap of luxury and our apathy right we're stuck and not able to move forward and it's because it's a self-initiated process right now eventually god's going to initiate a process of change where you got to make a choice but right now it's self-initiated yeah and man you think about it when he made his decision to go all in he didn't care i mean he was in full opposition to the quote unquote church yeah at that time right the very laws that the savior himself had given the people I'm getting ahead of myself but anyway it's okay. no, it's good. <laughs> he he is the one that chose to go in and disrupt yeah and try to get people to understand that it's more than just checking a box it's more than just this law of obedience well and we can just go there since you opened the box right but <laughs> well the reality is is that I realized over the last several weeks, um, some reading that I've done and just some new paradigm shifts that the Jesus that I thought I worshiped for a long time, the savior of the world, my Lord and savior, Jesus Christ, I only had a part, a partial understanding of who he really is. Like that's probably the nice way to say it. Uh, and I also ingested a lot of garbage that wasn't true about him until the point where for the longest time he was kind of this, like I said, pale, frail, hippie and then I realized as I read through the stories and actually see what's there in the New Testament I'm like 
there's this whole other side of Christ that I didn't realize was there. He wants me to be uncomfortable. And he wants us to choose to be uncomfortable to grow. And he did that with the people in his day. So one story that comes to mind, this is in Luke 11, where he's invited to the home of a Pharisee to eat a meal. And if we think of Christ in the tradition that I was taught, right, we see a Christ who comes in the door meekly and mildly, and he's done some great things, but he's just going to try to influence the people gently, and he's going to love them, right? And, and those are all definite characteristics of Christ, only he does the exact opposite. He walks by everybody who's in line, preparing to wash their hands, blows off 2,000 years of tradition, invites himself to sit down, starts eating, and the host of the house is like, what are you doing? You didn't even wash, right? The people started to say that to him, and he's like, but it's so funny, they call him Lord, right? Like he brings such a presence of power with him that they still call him Lord, even though he's, he's just desecrated tradition. So what does he do? He does all of that to break tradition and quote unquote be rude. And then he starts insulting them. He says, yeah, you Pharisees, you do, and you scribes, you do a great job of cleaning the outside of the dish, but inwardly you're ravening wolves. And he calls them hypocrites. And then the lawyers start in and they're like, well, what about us, Lord? He's like, you're fools, right? <laughs> and he completely, completely insults all of them. And this happened over and over. The first time he heals anyone, if you go into Luke 6, I think it's like verse 11, verse 10 or 11. The first time he heals anyone in the synagogue, well, the first time on record, I guess, in the Gospels. He calls this brother to the front, right? And they know, it, they, they brought him. It says they brought this man to be healed so that they could tempt Christ. I'm like, wait a second. You're so entrenched in your thought processes as a, as a Pharisee, right? That you bring a man who you know Christ can heal with the power of whatever. I mean, I guess the Elzebub is what they were saying, right? <laughs> you bring him so that he can stand in front of the people and do this miracle so that then you can take him down? Like, this makes zero sense, right? So Christ calls the man up, and in that verse, it says he looks around the room. And I can picture in my mind, I don't know how it exactly happened, but when I read it, I didn't see Christ looking at the man saying, give me your hand. I saw him looking into the eyes of all the people, and he says, give me your hand. But either way, it was a stare down. He stares him down. He says, give me your hand. And he heals this man on the Sabbath, which is a big time no-no, and sends him on his way. I mean, story after story after story where Christ, who we've had painted in the picture, half of him, right, of being this merciful, loving, win people through, you know, Stephen Covey style, right, like how to win friends and influence people, right? We see that. That's what's portrayed. But that's not the fullness of Christ. Like he would come into situations with the intent, honestly, I think of giving an opportunity and an out for the people who felt trapped by the culture and tradition. Not only that, I don't, I don't think he went in there thinking I'm going to insult these guys, no. but his thought process was, I'm going to shock some people. <laughs> right. I'm going to break them free from this bondage of their brain and get them so riled and 
and befuddled, <laughs> they're going to have to pay attention and realize that something's happening here. Right. Even the front runner of Christ, John the Baptist, I always thought, here's John the Baptist. We see the meekness of, of John the Baptist in the very touching scene of him baptizing the Christ, right? Mm-hmm. We see his meekness, his humility, and his mildness. But Doctrine and Covenants says that the purpose, the mission of John the Baptist was to tear down the kingdom of the Jews. That's right. That's not gentle language. He started the disruption. Right. And got the, <laughs> got the scene prepped and ready for the Savior to come in. When he healed that man on the Sabbath, and they were all worried about the rule that just got broke... Well, he's the one that gave them that rule. He even says that. He's like, you're going to tell the son of man what he can do on his own day? (laughs) He basically says that to them. And they don't get it, right? Because they're still not understanding who he really is. Right. So let's kind of wheel that back into where we're at with the church. You know, these different phrases that keep getting thrown around to second comforter and baptism of fire and calling an election made sure. And half the people that hear that are like, Oh, don't say that. That's for the next life. And there's another portion that people are like, how do I get that? Like, what is that? How does it work? Right. Yeah. Qualifying for the church of the firstborn, right? That's another taboo subject, right? Even though it's the main part of the sealing ordinance <laughs> Joseph F. Smith right here. This is a prophet. Okay. This is not Greg and I, drawing up some obscure craziness out of our own heart, right? This comes from a prophet. So either Joseph F. Smith was a prophet or he wasn't. And these are the words that he said. The higher ordinances in the temple pertain to exaltation in the celestial kingdom. In order to receive this blessing, one must keep the law, must abide by the law which the king, which that kingdom is governed. He who is not able to abide the law of the celestial kingdom cannot abide a celestial glory. So being ordained an elder or a high priest or an apostle, or even the president of the church is not that which brings exaltation, but obedience to the laws and ordinances and the covenants required of those who desire to become members of the church of the firstborn as they are administered in the house of the Lord. So he's saying even the prophet or a president of the church just by holding that office isn't automatically qualified to have communion with the general assembly and church of the firstborn and be part of the church of the firstborn. I just want to make it really clear at this point that our intention and the intention of this podcast is not to fight against the church in any way, shape or form. No, we, we up until just a few years ago, walked in the same midst of darkness of tradition checking boxes and trying to trying to do what we what we've been taught the point of this podcast is to give permission for us to be able to follow the prophet to do what he's asking us to do to recognize that there is so much more that's available and these traditions are what are holding us back our i love joseph smith here's another quote from him he said But there has been a great difficulty in getting anything into the heads of this generation. It has been like splitting hemlock knots with a corn dodger for a wedge and a pumpkin for a beetle. Even the saints are slow to understand. I have tried for a number of years to get the minds of the saints prepared to receive the things of God, 
but we frequently see some of them after suffering all they have for the work of God will fly to pieces as glass as soon as anything comes that is contrary to their traditions. They cannot stand in the fire of it all. How many will be able to abide the celestial law and go through and receive their exaltation? Again, I am unable to say as many are called, but few are chosen. That is descriptive language. So a corn dodger, for those of you who don't know, is like a cornmeal pancake, right? And hemlock knots are tough, right? They are like hard, hard wood. So imagine taking a pancake, putting it into a piece of hemlock knot, a hemlock knot, not just a piece of hemlock wood, but a knot from a hemlock tree, and then hitting it with a pumpkin and expecting it to split. split. (laughs) What are you going to have? A mess. Yep. That's all you're going to end up with. I don't care if both of them are frozen. You're still going to have a mess. Yeah. Trying to get it into the mind of the Latter-day Saints. What is it that he's trying to get into their minds? Well, It's this reality of what the temple is trying to teach us. It's trying to teach us how to be presented at the veil to the Lord and then to enter into his presence. It is to be able to commune with the church of the firstborn. This is why we're on the earth. This is what we're trying to to do. This is what Moses tried to get the Israelites to do when they decided to toil the mountain and, and run away. We're at that same place again, and we have to be able to recognize that there are very powerful traditions that are holding us back. This is from the book of Helaman, chapter 15, verse 7. And behold, ye do know of yourselves, for ye have witnessed it, that as many of them as are brought to the knowledge of truth and to know of the wicked and abominable traditions of their fathers and are led to believe the holy scriptures, yea, the prophecies of the holy prophets which are written, which leadeth them to faith on the Lord and unto repentance, which faith and repentance bringeth a change of heart unto them. I can tell you, as we have mentored with so many individuals through the mentoring program, and help them to recognize the wicked traditions of their fathers and to really, really believe the Lord, to really believe what the scriptures are saying and that which is written, it leads them to faith in the Lord and the desire to repent. Now that word repentance, again, we talked about it in a prior podcast, is not negative in any way connotation. It simply means the desire to change the desire to advance. The only way we can truly change, truly repent, is to put off false traditions that we have about ourselves. And those false traditions range from, gosh, just believing that somehow we're lesser because of something we've experienced in our lives, to not believing that we can cast out a devil to protect our family, to not believing that our wives have power in the priesthood to heal and to do the Lord's work. Like we can go on and on and on for hours of what the traditions are, but a tradition, a wicked tradition is something that keeps us from coming fully into the presence of the Lord now, like right now. Yep. And so what I would challenge you to do is to look in your life 
we've called it limiting beliefs in the past. Um, they're all the same thing. They're all cunning snares of the adversary that he's placed in our path that keep us from receiving a fullness, a fullness of the priesthood, a fullness of the Savior, um, the opportunity to walk back into the presence of the Father. Our Savior, when he came the first time, came pretty peacefully comparative to what he's going to be returning as this time. Which is interesting because the more I read about him in the New Testament, particularly, the more I realize that he ultimately prophesied that the Jews' kingdom would be completely decimated and they'd be scattered 40 yeah. years after his death, right? right? Like, so that is hardly what we've been taught. And yet, you're right. Like, when he comes again in the fullness of his glory, go ahead. Yeah, the, there's a reason why it's portrayed in red robes. This is where he comes to finish the sifting to finish the burning of the tares. Yep, to pass by the virgins who didn't have, or to, to tell them, sorry, you weren't ready, right? Yeah. Close the door on the wedding feast. Yeah. And the virgins are us as members of the church. Like, President Oaks, if you had any doubt of who the Lord was talking about, President Oaks gave a talk a few years ago and unequivocally said, Christ was talking about the members of his church. How come that how come that never comes up in Sunday school? How come how come that never like from the pulpit, right? How come we never have a gospel doctrine teacher who will actually I've said it, teach in seminary and other places. I divided the classroom in seminary one day when I was subbing and said, "Okay, the day of Christ has arrived. The bride, the bridegroom is here. This half of the room, I pointed out one of the boys, I was like, "You led all of them astray by tradition." The other half you qualified, you're going to make the cut. The rest of you just got burned. If Christ came tomorrow in his glory, do you have oil in your lamp right now or not? No one asks these questions because we're so afraid to actually get personal with it. We'd rather show up in comfort, right, and have all the right answers to the gospel version of Jeopardy when it comes to say your prayers, read your scriptures, right? Do your ministering, blah, 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 right down the road. But when it actually comes to where the rubber meets the road in genuine discipleship, that will actually save you when Christ comes by having oil in your lamp. We don't talk about it. Then that is exactly why the tradition exists to keep us from making the gospel of Jesus Christ so personal and to keep us from such a personal relationship with him that we're blinded. So when the day of destruction does come, Satan's harvest is made. Yeah. <clears throat> this is another quote from our brother Jake. He says, false tradition is introduced when a people gradually become less in tune with God than their pre predecessors through disobedience or slothfulness. Eventually, all that remains of their chosen status are memories of the fruits of the closeness of God that are no longer apparent. Through time, God's continuous living word is replaced by static recordings of past revelations. What God is saying is replaced by what God has said. That is so powerful if you think about what Thank you, Jake. Yeah. We, we love to get together as saints and talk about 
what the past prophets have done, what the past people in the scriptures have done. But for some reason, when it's time to apply that to ourselves, it's, it's fringy. It's over the top. We shouldn't be going there. We should be sitting back in our pew and listening and feeling the spirit and then going home and watching football or whatever it is that we do during the week. Back to Babylon. Instead, if we listen to what God is saying, listen to our prophet, there is nothing more important than you can be, that you can be engaged in than the gathering of Israel. And that is starting with yourself, gathering yourself out of Babylon, becoming the mighty warrior in Christ that, that he needs us to be. When he comes back in the red robes, we were talking about this in Sunday school. They were talking about the two... Um, disciples that will be in Jerusalem and how powerful they'll be and how mighty they'll be. And I was like, well, wait a second. They're not just going to do it themselves. They are there to gather Israel and convert them. And there's going to be powerful warriors from the house of Israel standing next to those two prophets, fighting with them, holding back the enemy. It's not going to be President Nelson standing up there with a staff, destroying the enemies that are coming at us. Right. Otherwise, why did the God, why did the God of heaven give us the vision of of Isaiah the prophet who I think it was him who saw all the legions right and then opened the eyes of the young man that was with them right everyone on the outside of that scenario right the the people of the celestial sphere saw a prophet of God standing glory they didn't see the minions not minions they didn't see the legions of angels that actually did the work right they just saw a prophet of God wielding power. But the reality is, if you had spiritual eyes, you'd see that people on both sides of the veil were there fighting. Well, on, on one side of the veil, were crushing the enemy. Well, and even those that, on, that were on this side of the veil, yeah, they were a small group of individuals, but they were mighty. <laughs> right. Right? That's, the Lord is calling us up into a battalion to be warriors. And it, it's not just so we can leave it to the quote-unquote prophets to do the work. That's we are the quote-unquote prophets for our area. We are supposed to be seeking further light and knowledge. We're supposed to be seeking revelation and visions and dreams and all of the amazing blessings that are promised in the scripture so that we can stand up and be part of that battalion. It's not the prophet against Satan. No. It is the house of Israel against Satan. So I hadn't planned on sharing this, but I think this is a really... Uh, pertinent part of what we're talking about here because why do we want to better understand Christ why do we want to better understand that he's not this this well uh, guys I think we should kind of do these things and love one another he he obviously embodies love he embodies perfect love and charity the flip side of that is that he was an agitator and why is he agitating us he's agitating us for the purpose of change so that we can make a choice and the choice needs to be either we choose discipleship or we don't we choose to fill our lamps or we don't. And yesterday, my son, right? So it's time to leave for church. My wife had sent him on an errand. The errand took him through an area of our property that was muddy. He's in his church clothes. He's 12, right? He's like, doesn't recognize that he's an agent unto himself, right? Which is the whole purpose of what God's doing with us. He's helping us to decide, are you going to be an agent unto yourself or not? Are you going to make, are you going to make a wise choice or are you going to make are you going to make a foolish choice? So my son proceeds through the mud, 
to go do the thing that my wife had asked him to do and comes back filthy muddy. And this is like five minutes before we need to leave. He's got mud all the way up the back of his pants. His shoes are saturated in mud and we got to get him cleaned up. I, I didn't do the best job of handling that with the most Christ-like demeanor. And I repented of that. I'm still repenting. I told him, I'm sorry that I raised my voice a little bit. Um, not a little bit. I won't minimize. I raised my voice <laughs> and I was like, but then I was like, okay, Lord, I need help with this. What are we doing? And he's like, teach him about agency, right? Teach him to choose today. So I, I ask him, I go, hey, okay, bud, we're, we're all cleaned up, right? He's got his shoes back on. We washed his pants, put them in the dryer. Um, we're in the car. We're, we're getting in the car. We're going to church. I go, did you get two, do you, did you face two conflicting commandments? And he's like, yes. I go, what were they? He's like, Mom told me to go do to get the salad, which is where he went to get salad out of a fridge that's outdoors. And I was like, okay. And what's the other commandment? He's like, well, keep my church clothes clean. I'm like, so you had a choice, right? And you only had you only saw one choice, which was the law of obedience, right? That you were going to get it done. But by doing that, you threw yourself for a loop, and you weren't actually acting as an agent. You were being you were being acted upon by fear because you were afraid if you didn't come back with the salad that mom would be upset with you. He's like, yeah. So I ask him in that environment, this teaching environment that was facilitated by him getting muddy and I'm learning at the same time. And I go, what could you have done differently? And he goes, I could have come back and said, mom, I looked, I don't think I should walk over there because it's really muddy and I'm going to get muddy. Can we drive the car over there on our way to church to get the salad out? That, he came up with that at 12 years old on his, on his own. And I go, and what would have been the result? He's like, I wouldn't have gotten dirty and we wouldn't have been late for church and missed the sacrament. And I was like, yep. Right? That's the whole thing that the Lord's trying to get us to do. He's given us commandments that he wants us to fulfill. And he wants us to learn to be agents, to act for ourselves instead of being acted upon. If you go back and study Elder Bednar, who replaced Elder Maxwell, very fitting replacement. I think the Lord definitely brought in a similar thinker. Elder Bednar's whole focus for his entire time, if you could summarize it in a couple of sentences, is that the Lord wants us to learn to act for ourselves and not be acted upon. Jews, meridian of time, were in the being acted upon program out of fear, they would do whatever the Pharisees and Sadducees said because they wanted to make it to heaven. And it was all based in tradition. And sometimes that decision as an agent contradicts itself. And you have to choose between two things all the way back to the very beginning with Adam and Eve. Yeah. They could have stayed in the garden and that would have been a good thing. Right? For them. <laughs> <laughs> For them, yeah. All of us would have been out of luck. But And so here, here a decision has to be made. And it was completely contradictory. Eve even asked, is there no other way? Like, she knew what she was supposed to do. She's supposed to bring children into the world. But she also knew what the commandment was. Don't heal on the Sabbath. Right? right? Yep. <laughs> and she had to make a choice of what she was going to do based upon what? There was no written law that told Eve that was the right choice to make. An angel didn't appear to Eve and say, Eve, do this one instead of that one. This is the better one. Eve literally had to make her own 
choice based upon the light and knowledge she had at that point. And she took a huge step out into the darkness. Yeah. I mean, ultimately, she knew if Adam didn't partake, she's flying solo outside of the, of the, gar- the garden. Right. She walks up to him. She's like, I did this, buddy. <laughs> Look. But this just dawned on me, right? Adam had a commandment that Eve should remain with him. So now he's got a choice, right? Like Eve has to stay with me. She just took the fruit. She's getting the boot. And I have, what am I going to do right now? He's got to make a choice. Her choice facilitated his choice. Sometimes those choices that we're asked to make are the difference between us spiritually advancing or not. This is a quote from another one of our brothers, Steve. And he sent this over for this podcast. He said, traditions more than sins create a barrier between our mortal bodies and our eternal spirits. We cannot fully receive our own spirit when we are subtly ensnared by the traditions of this world. These traditions have been carefully crafted and currently cultivated by Satan and his followers. What the tradition leads us to do is is equal to doing nothing. His goal is to keep powerful warriors contently sitting on the sidelines. This is why fully understanding who we are is so key. When we know who we really are, we see traditions for what they are. And we armor up and grab our swords and join the ongoing battle. Think about Eve. She was held back from her full potential from fulfilling the measure of her creation based upon a tradition. I got to obey this law, right? This is what we're supposed to do. But because she knew who she was and what she was supposed to do, she stepped out into some pretty dark darkness Mm -hmm. and made a choice. And because of it, we're all here. We all get to participate in the plan. We are at a similar crossroads right now. And it's literally as grave as where Eve was at. We are being asked whether we're going to step up and join the Lord in his red robes when he comes to cleanse the earth, when he comes to do the final gathering. We have to make a choice of whether we're in or out, whether we're going to put on our armor and get in the fight or whether we're going to sit on the sidelines. Yep. And it's not easy. No. It's scary. And people are going to look at you and they're going to be like, that guy's crazy. That guy's a fringer. Yeah, just pause for a second. And let's go down in our minds the path of every genuine disciple, all the noble and great ones in the history. Right? President Monson, quote, I love this. He said, when the time for action arrives, the time for decision is past. Right. right. So all of these genuine disciples at some point were all in, regardless of what it meant, regardless of what the Lord asked them to do. Right. Abinadi didn't come, didn't get it, walk away from the city and then realize, no, they're serious. If I go back, Lord, they're going to kill me. Right. I don't know that he didn't argue with the Lord on that. They may Maybe have had a discussion, yeah. but he ultimately made the decision. Right. That was yeah. the decision point. Then he's like, fine, I'm all in. I'll go back, and if they kill me, they kill me. I think a lot of them, I hope, I hope they did. It seems like most likely that Samuel the Lamanite, after the first time he got knocked off the wall, was like, <laughs> right. you really want me to get back up there, Lord? They got bows and arrows. Right. 
they're slinging stuff. It's ain't cool. And I think he received a witness from the Lord. I'm sure it's. I'm sure he, this is this is how it went in my mind. He's like, Lord, they got bows and arrows, and they're gonna kill me. If you want me dead, I'll get back up on the wall. Yep. And the Lord said, Samuel, get back up on the wall. Mm-hmm. And Samuel's like, All right, I'll get on the wall. Yeah, same with Abinadi. Yep. And you know. I, it seems to me, though, too, that every disciple that ultimately gives their life as a martyr for the cause sees it coming. Mm-hmm. I just have the sense that Abinadi saw it coming. Yeah. He, he even said it. What you do with me after I'm done? He's like, don't touch me right now or you die now because I got to finish my message. But when I'm done, whatever you do to me is going to be done to you. Yep. He'd seen it at that point. Yeah. Joseph knew it was coming. You know what killed Joseph? Ultimately, he laid his life on the altar. That, that, that was... In, in a decision but the story of Joseph we tell ourselves all these stories you know what happened Joseph got on his horse to leave town again ahead of the mob that was coming to arrest him and he rode across the river and I think his horse's name was Charlie but he's on his horse and some of the brethren catch up with him on horseback that were also indicted in this mess and Hiram is with him and they say Joseph the saints are murmuring. They're saying that you're, they can't believe you're running again. And Joseph hung his head for a moment and pulled the reins on his horse and turned him back towards town. And Hiram said, Joseph, no. And Joseph said, if my life is of no value to my friends, then it is of none to me. And he rode back to his death. He knew it was coming. We're not being asked right now to lay our lives on the line. You may be someday. Maybe you have been. I think in a way we are. But symbolically, that's what I was going to say, is we are. Christ is like, will you give it all? And brothers and sisters, I can tell you and I testify to you in the name of Jesus Christ, unequivocally, and I do not say this lately, I will die for the Lord. And even more importantly, you'll live for the Lord. And I, and I do every day I get up and I'm like, what am I doing today? Yeah. I think, I think it's easy to say I'll die for the Lord, but what if, what if what you're being asked to do is stand up against traditions in your ward? Yeah. What if it's to stand up against (laughs) and, and speak the truth that the prophet is asking you? What if it's to stand up and say, Brethren, I think we can do better. I think we can obtain this higher power that the Lord's asking us to. What if it's to do a podcast, write a book? What if it's to go across to your neighbor and share some truths with them? What if it's yesterday when I couldn't believe it was coming out of my mouth and I I didn't apologize to the person. I think I was soft enough with my commentary to have them understand, but... Someone said, what are our challenges these days? And someone said, addictions to drug and alcohol, drugs and alcohol, right? And as they said it, I said, I agree. Those are definitely bad. But how many addictions are in this room that we're not addressing, right? And then in that environment, I was willing to be vulnerable and say, I've struggled with addiction. My wife, who doesn't think she struggled with addiction, said to me one day, I can't understand how you... I can't understand addiction. And then I looked at her and the Lord told me, ask her about chocolate chip cookies. Right. And I love my wife and I'm not, I'm not trying to beat her up. I'm, she was totally humbled by this. I looked at her and I said, well, hardcore addiction 
Think about going a month without a chocolate chip cookie, which she probably eats a cookie a day-ish. You know, it's not like she's out of control with it, but she enjoys her little snack in the evening after the kids have gone to bed. And I said, imagine going a month without that and then amplify it by a thousand times. And then I talked about, I broke down tradition. We've always, well, safely we can sit in this room and realize most people are not on drugs and alcohol. So we can safely say most people here are not. Therefore, we can talk about it because it's safe. But as soon as you bring that home and break a tradition and go, what about food? What about those of you in here? And I said this, what about those of you in here who are, who are dependent on codependent relationships? What about those of us who are addicted to our televisions? What about those of us who are addicted to sports? What about those of us who are addicted to video games, Money. right? Money, power, prestige. lust, right? I mean, all these other things that are addictions that are only exist in this celestial world when they're out of, out of balance. Willingness to say those things. It got uncomfortable in there. You could physically feel the shift in people's un- discomfort, but that's what Christ asks us to do as disciples is to be bold. And I was hopefully meek and humble in that because I said, I've struggled with addiction. I didn't say what, but I struggled with some pretty big addictions to include the drugs and alcohol piece. So I know a little bit about what that looks like, but when we, when we live in a pharisaical box and only cast tradition in the context of what we're willing to accept, then we don't get the fullness of discipleship. Traditions. So, how do we how do we get past these traditions? Right? How do we how do we stand up and do what the Lord's asking us to do with confidence? Because I think a lot of what I hear in the mentoring is, I don't trust the revelation that I'm receiving. I don't know if I'm really doing what the Lord wants me to do. I'm worried that I'm going to step outside of what I should be doing. So how do we know whether we're on the Lord's side and doing what he wants us to do? I think the f- most important thing that you can do is, is draw a blank slate. Take all the things you think you know and just set them aside for a minute. You don't have to get rid of them. Just set them to the side for a minute and then draw a little circle in the middle of your chalkboard and put the Savior there and start there. He's your Lord. What would he do in that situation? And don't let the tradition pop back into your head of what other people are telling you you should do. What would the Lord have you do? This is another quote from Steve that he sent over. He said, when we come to this world, we are largely free from temporal attachments. As babies and toddlers, we're in tune with higher higher heavenly vibrations. And it is our interaction with well-meaning parents, families, friends, and other earthly experiences that we learn the traditions and habits that tether us to this world. This is why we are taught in the scriptures to become as little children. Children in their innocence act instinctively or turn to parents for guidance. We need to turn to our heavenly parents and follow our spiritual instincts or guidance of the spirit rather than worrying about earthly traditions we picked up on this journey. This came to me when I was trying to determine why my children's language and playing sometimes aggravates my wife and I. The truth is that they are operating at a higher frequency than us, experiencing true joy. And when we are caught up in worldly concerns or traditions, it is uncomfortable or even painful for us to be around. This is also clearly why the prophet told us in announcing the new children's program 
to get them started and then get out of their way. <laughs> we have to get to that point where we are focused on the voice of our heavenly parents, father, mother, and the Lord, letting them guide us. We can go back through all of the prophet's talks, and he says it over and over and over again. We are to be listening to our heavenly parents as little children. Seek to be taught by the Lord himself. Yep. Right? Becoming agents. My son and I spent quite a bit of our, the last part of our discussion yesterday talking about what is an agent. So he's like, I go, we have a friends that are Border Patrol guys, right? I'm like, what, are the, what is their title? He's like, agent. What about FBI? Agent, right? They represent a group or an individual as an agent. So as agents unto ourselves, right, which is a scriptural phrase, that means we're acting in compliance with the truest form of ourselves, which is our infinite spirit self, to do the will of Heavenly Father, Heavenly Mother, and the Savior. And thereby, it is our will. It is genuinely acting in compliance with who we actually really are, which is God, gods and goddesses, priests and priestesses, kings and queens, to the Most High God. Another way to look at agent would be like an insurance agent. So with an insurance agent, let's take State Farm. You have the company, State Farm, CEO that started it. Mm-hmm. And then you go in and you take the tests and you do all the studying and everything you need to become an agent. And once you're an agent, you now operate independently of the main company. And you have people that are your stewardship to take care of. You are their agent. You are the one that if they get hurt, you take care of them. If um, they get in an accident, you're the one that's there to help them. You act independently of the company but at the same time, you follow the rules of the company. Yep. So you're an agent unto yourself, but at the same time, you are a representative of the whole, of the complete package. And that's what the Lord is asking us to do, is to become those agents where he can trust us to go out and do what he would do. Which is like a perfect segue into the next podcast, the next part of this, right? So this first one, we introduced you a little bit better to the true character of Jesus Christ, right? Well, a missing chunk. We, we focused on a big missing chunk, which is, which is that he was an agitator. And I, I have a firm testimony that when, he, when he's been involved in my life at the most intimate moments, when I've been like, why am I, this hurts, Lord. Like, why am I going through this? He's told me because you asked for it. You ratified your life plan, which included this. I needed to get your attention. I needed to get your (laughs) attention. And you told me, like he said that to me, you told me that when you weren't doing these things after I'd prompted you to do them, that I'd stop talking to you for a little while, that, that there would be radio silence so that you would come back to me and ask, why am I being so quiet? So I could say... Because in your life plan, we talked about this, and you told me you wanted me to withdraw, not only when you were sinning overtly with sins of commission, but also when you were omitting things that you should be doing. And I realized I bore my testimony that week, like, holy smokes, Jesus Christ wants me to be uncomfortable. (laughs) Come on, brothers and sisters. How often do you actually think he was comfortable in his life while he was on the earth? He couldn't even sleep. It says it in the scriptures. People would come and 
Peter was trying to deny them, right? Because like, hey, wait, no, the Lord's sleeping. Let's leave him alone, right? And his or whatever apostle it was, is like kicks Thomas, I think, or somebody kicks the door open like, Lord, I need to talk to you, right? And the Lord didn't get angry. He just sat up and said, what, right? He's sleeping on the boat, right? He's like, oh, you have little faith. Like you guys could have squelched the storm, but I woke up, I fixed it. Okay, I'm going back to bed, right? He wasn't, he couldn't even sleep while he was on, here on the earth. He's the epitome of somebody who just chose discomfort for our benefit. And yet somehow we think we get to escape the discomfort program and that's not how it works. Not if you want to be a disciple. No. That's not how it works. We, as we choose to follow the Christ, we are following the Christ, meaning we will go through the same things that he went through if we want what he has. Yeah. Now I love President Nelson always says it's a choice, right? You can be part of the battalion if you want to be. You have to choose. If you have in your mind chosen in to be a disciple of Christ, but you're still holding back because you're worried about what somebody else is going to think, especially if the Lord has asked you to do something, there's still more to do. More, you, There's further that you need to step, things that you... You have to get to a point where you can stop listening to everybody else and be a child that will listen to his parent or her parent and do what he's asking you to do. These time, this time period that we're entering into right now, very soon, very soon in my opinion, we will not have direct contact with the prophet in Salt Lake. As we enter into the tribulations, we're going to have to do it on our own. That's why the prophet is pushing us to a home-based church. Yeah, so yeah, church home, home, um, home-centered, church-supported. Church there we church go. Home, home-centered, church-supported. That's not by happenstance that he's doing that. They are preparing us to live the patriarchal order, where you fathers are going to have to stand up as the head of your household and lead your families with your wife. In the fullness of the priesthood. That's right. Your wife will stand with you as an equal with power in the priesthood to stand with you and fight the darkness that will be upon us because it's going to be intense. And brothers, I just want to point this out. I'm going to call you out right now. I won't call the sisters out because generally our experience is they've already called themselves out. Brothers, I'm poking you in the chest right now. If you're not trying to stand up and lead your family in righteousness, you may get left in the dust. It's time to stand up. It's time to lead in righteousness right. with your wife in the fullness of the priesthood. It's time to get in the game. One word that I really just quickly came to my mind. If you don't know who Brene Brown is, um, look up her TED talk on vulnerability. It, she's amazing. I've For my doctorate degree, as I've been working through that, I've studied some of her stuff. She's amazing in that she had an epiphany one day about vulnerability and how she had an aversion to being vulnerable. And as a culture, we have a virgin. This is outside of the church. We have an aversion to being vulnerable. And yet she's dedicated her life to studying and helping people understand that, that vulnerability is important. That an acknowledgement and a willingness to be vulnerable is a catalyst that will move you farther forward faster than you could have ever imagined on the discipleship path. She doesn't put it that way. She's more talking about relationship development and those kinds of things, but an acknowledgement of vulnerability and then an embrace of being vulnerable will move you forward. 
And that's the whole point of discipleship. Without being willing, being willing to be vulnerable, to stand up and do what Samuel the Lamanite did, did we wouldn't have his tremendous sermon. Abinadi. If he hadn't have been willing to be vulnerable, that whole nation ceases to exist. They get destroyed. Lehi stepping out into the street, not the prophet, doing what the Lord's asking him to do. Yep. That list goes on and on and on and on and on. It's so funny. This is a tradition, right? The great and noble ones, by and large, were not people that God, through some servant or God himself, put his hands on their head, at least in this celestial sphere, and ordained them to some calling. They just acted in compliance with their foreordained mission and read from their scroll their book of life on what the heck they were supposed to be doing, and they did it. As the Lord gave it to them. Yep. gospel's true brothers and sisters it's amazing we are in the most exciting time to be on the planet i know for me i don't want to check out i want to be in the game i want to be a part of this i want to be doing what the lord's asking me to do and know that my path is pleasing to him and i could care less what anybody else has to say about it that's not to say that i want to disrupt or push away from people completely opposite I want people to recognize their true potential. I want them to listen to the prophet when he says you were freaking saved to be here right now to be a part of this last great battle. And it's a battle. And you're here for a reason. If you're listening to this podcast, you are one of God's elect sons or daughters. And he has you on the earth right now to help bring in the second coming of the Savior to establish Zion. And you have at your hands, in your fingertips, all of the power of heaven. Greater works than I have performed will be done in these last days. That's the promise. Stop worrying about and fearing about all of the evil and garbage that's happening. Rise up into your true power as a son or daughter of God and receive what he's giving you. Because it is the fullness that he's offering as we prepare to move into a terrestrial world. I testify in his name and under his direction that you are called up. That he loves you. That he wants to be a part of your life. That he wants to give you every tool possible available to heal your broken heart. To give you strength and courage to show you what needs to be done and then give you the tools to do it. He wants to be part of your life if you'll allow him to do that. And we don't need to wait for him to come out of heaven and tap us on the shoulder in his glory, right? He's wanting, he's, he's tapping you on the shoulder now through his prophet, through the spirit. Brothers and sisters, I testify to you in the name of Jesus Christ that what Greg just said is true. And I testify to you, brothers and sisters, stop what you're doing right now. Be still for a second. Just if you have to stop the recording, stop the recording, but be still and think and listen and receive what the Lord has already told you regarding your mission and embrace it. Embrace all of it, including the vulnerability involved in doing what he's asked you to do and get going now. If you're not sure how to do it, reach out. We will teach you what we know about being vulnerable, which we're learning quite a bit <laughs> about being willing to be vulnerable. Uh, we might not always get it right, but um, that's why we're willing to repent on our podcast and say we're sorry for being crass. Sometimes you just need that 
second eye looking on your situation and just a reconfirmation maybe of what you've already received. Um, the mentoring program has changed countless lives. People who get on and they'll say, I'll be honest with you, Greg, I only got on this mentoring call because I felt prompted to. I don't even know what to say to you. How does this even work? And I always just say to them, tell me a little bit about your journey, where you're at, and the Lord will do the rest. And every time, by the time that call is done, we've both been edified, and they are very clear on who they are, what their mission is, and what the next step is. So if you're at that point where you're like, I just don't know what to do, jump on a call with us. The amazing thing, too, is to watch the transformation. I know Greg's had this experience over and over. I have. We've had them call back, right? They don't know why they're calling the first time. And then by the end of the call, they're completely settled with what they've already been told, and they're moving forward. And then two months later, they get on the call with us. And I'm like, well, this will be interesting, because I remember when we talked before where this person was. And they get on the phone, and it is a completely different person. Yep. Like power coming from the other end of the phone instead of like false humility and like unsure, you know, being unsure of themselves. Like there is power, like palatable, palatable power coming from the other end of the phone. Yep. And you're like, what just happened? And the Lord's like, pretty cool, huh? And we had one conversation, right? Like one time. And they're just calling back to say, I just want to tell you basically to return and report on what, what they've experienced in genuinely getting on the discipleship path. And that, that's a lot of, a lot of folks that we talk to. Yep. It's amazing. Want to again, just thank all of you who have donated to his simple truths. Yeah. We are so grateful for those donations and what they do for us and for our families as we strive to, to do this work. Um, just can't say enough of how much gratitude we have for those of you who have heard the prompting to to reach out and help and follow that um eternally grateful we are eternally grateful but not just us but the many 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 people who have been mentored or taught through the podcast last week um the facebook page showed that there was 115,000 people that had connected with that message um So a lot of work is being done and facilitated through your generosity and your uh, willingness to listen to the Lord as as he prompts you to reach out and help us. We love you for that. Thank you so much. Hoorah for Israel. God be with you until we meet again.